Subscribe to the next 12 weeks of The Spectator, in print and online, for just £12, and we'll send you a copy of Associate Editor Douglas Murray's new book, The War on the West, worth £20, absolutely free. Join the party today at spectator.co.uk forward slash Murray. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the historian Philip Mansell, whose new book, just out in paperback, is King of the World, A Life of Louis XIV. Philip, welcome. Hello. Um, Louis XIV, much written about. What was it when he started that made you think there's something fresh to say here? I wanted to take a European approach, an international approach, to show he's thinking about... Germany, England, Italy, the world, America, just as much as about France. And also a lot of new documents have come to light, like the complete correspondence of his second wife, Madame de Maintenon, and many other documents. So there was always something new to say about Louis XIV and Versailles. And Louis XIV, you know, to those of us who aren't buried in French history, he kind of, we think of him generally, caricaturally, sort of in his pomp. But when he came to the throne, or, you know, before he came to the throne, France was absolutely on the brink of, you know, it was a very unstable country, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was in meltdown. The great nobles were rebelling. The Parlement de Paris, the supreme law court, was challenging royal authority. The people of Paris was putting up barricades and attacking royal officials. At one time, the royal family had to flee at night from Paris to Saint-Germain in secret. And it was touch and go. Often provincial cities would close their gates to Louis XIV himself in person at at the beginning of his reign, about 1652. But somehow they always kept their army and their guard together and some money. And he had this great minister, Mazarin, who was a very clever operator. And somehow, in the end, the crown won. And this this first uprising, La Fronde, it's it's known yes. as it, was this a sort of almost like a rehearsal for the French Revolution? It, it seems like it at times. The hatred of royal officials, the hatred of above all of war taxation. But I think the influence then of the Catholic Church was so great and of priests that they stopped civil unrest and stopped violence. And maybe the prestige of the young king, who was very good looking and very charming. And there was 150 years of peace after the France, so it wasn't quite a rehearsal. But that that period, one of the things that very, seems very striking to me is quite how seething with intrigue even the court was. I mean, yes. you know, the king's own mother was a, yes. a sort of died in the war trade, and then they were all quite forgiving. They kind of, you know, it, it, went back to square one each time. It, it was the game of power and the game of thrones. Everybody was changing sides all the time. The, yes, his own mother was plotting with Spain, but the moment she became regent, she was more of a patriotic Frenchwoman than anybody. And that's how it was. It was natural to switch sides. And what, what I should have said, one thing that restrained the Fronde from being a rehearsal for the French Revolution. They were so horrified by the English Civil War and the execution of Charles I that they said anything rather than be like the English. Now, the king's relationship when he was very young with Mazarin, you've mentioned, is sort of rather fascinating. Mazarin is this sort of extraordinary fixer, diplomat, 
yes. tutor in power, in a sense, isn't he? Yes, and he's a Roman, he's a foreigner, so he's more trusted by the Queen Mother, Louis XIV's mother, Anne of Austria, and by other officials, because he doesn't have a vested interest inside France. He's a very good operator. He's peaceful. He doesn't go around executing people, as Richelieu had done. And he's completely corrupt. He's for sale and he's buying people, selling offices to great nobles. But in the end, he wins. And in the end, he gets new provinces for France. He's one of the most successful diplomats of European history, in my opinion, in some ways cleverer than Talleyrand. The king's reliance as a you know a young king you know before during the regency on Mazarin is considerable and yet he takes rather a different direction doesn't he after Mazarin's death and when he takes the throne yes i think Mazarin was the father louis the 14th had never had his father louis the 13th dies when he's 5 he's also very charming very close to his mother it's it's an emotional triangle they write to each other every day practically he didn't like the bargaining side of selling offices and and dealing with great nobles almost as equals. But the foreign policy is quite similar to expand France and to wait for the inheritance of the Spanish monarchy. And after Louis, I think it's almost immediately after the coronation, if I'm, I'm remembering the sequence right, Louis does, does he not, gathers his sort of senior courtiers around him is this words to the effect of, I'm going to be in charge from now on and everything goes through me, you know, ignore the parliament, ignore... I mean, he, he sort of... It's a declaration of intent very, very early on in the rule, isn't it? Yes, that's all true. And he works incredibly hard. He's not sort of frolicking around with his girlfriends or dancing the night away. Often he's working till midnight, even when he's over 60. And the ambassadors would write letters directly to him not just to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He's passionately interested in the details of everything. Administration, diplomacy, the gilding on his bedroom at Versailles, and so on. He's a control freak. But the other side of that is he could be manipulated by his own ministers, the people he worked with. And people said this at the time, that he's just the plaything of his ministers. And he himself... Long after the death and the dismissal of his key war minister, the Marquis de Louvois, he said how awful he was and how he regretted having employed him. So that's almost an admission that he had been manipulated by Louvois. But I mean that—that's sort of, you know, we'll maybe get onto it a bit later in more detail. But that—that's sort of micromanagement. I mean, yes. it's often been in the twentieth century. One of the chief charges against you know, against Hitler, against Stalin in the early phase of the Second World War, that that they couldn't keep their toy soldiers off the battlefield and that they would insist on, you know, even down to sort of platoon level being yeah. directing, often very, you know, amateurishly. And that's... Louis Fourteenth was guilty of that and there's a famous siege of Oudenard in 1708. He sends his grandsons, his generals and the war minister to try and supervise it and it's a catastrophe. Marlborough wins. And he particularly felt that he knew what is now Belgium, what was then the Spanish Netherlands, better than anybody. He'd been there a lot on campaign, the rivers, the landscape, where to advance, where to retreat. But he did, in certain circumstances, leave 
really great successful generals like the Maréchal de Villars at the end of his reign, he did, or the Maréchal de Luxembourg earlier, he did leave them in control of the campaign, and then things worked quite well. Now, to start with, you know, as a young man, he was handsome, he was immensely charming. What, what's your sense of his, his character and his drives? His drives, he, he, he longs to be Brit- famous, successful, a new Alexander the Great, admired crown had been slightly overshadowed by Richelieu in the reign of his father, Louis XIII, who was physically also quite ill. He wants to be this great young god, literally, a new Alexander, a new Hercules, winning wars. Why not have a great world empire in America, in Thailand, in bits of Africa or India, to be talked about all over the world? So there's all these pictures of him with his fame being trumpeted and the four corners of the world are admiring him and all that. And there's this phrase he says when ordering the bombardment of Brussels in the 1690s, il faut faire quelque chose d'éclat, you, you must do something striking. I think that is the key to him. He wants to make an effect and, and it blew up in his face often. But he, he was talked about all his life and... If he'd stuck to soft power and French luxury industries and parties at Versailles and boosting the French economy, it might have worked better. So it could have been lace, but it was cannons instead. (laughs) Exactly. He loved cannon. There are some of his cannon. You can go and see them in the courtyard of the Invalide in Paris. And they have the Royal Fleur de Lys. And on it is Ultima Ratio Regum, the last argument of kings. He knew he... His authority was really based on force, not on divine right. Now, that, that sense of force, you know, his his sort of personal guard was massively important to him, wasn't he? Because he couldn't trust a lot of the rest of the, yes. the armed forces. Because they'd had to flee at night, because two previous French kings had been murdered, Henri III and Henri IV, his own grandfather. His father had had by six or seven conspiracies against him. Always in French history, the King of France had had the biggest guard in Europe. And Louis XIV expanded it further, and he personally drilled and reviewed and selected his garde du corps, his grenadier à cheval, the mousquetaire gris and the mousquetaire noir, the grey musketeers, the black musketeers. He would drill them himself day in, day out, and... He loved it. He he was a military monarch long before the Hohenzollerns and Frederick the Great and Prussia. And if his descendants, Louis XV and Louis XVI, had stuck to that, there might have been no French Revolution. You make a distinction in the book, which seems to me to be kind of important all the way through, between the court and the state. Can you talk a bit about how that plays out through his reign and how that changes? Why is that a yes. distinction important? It's very interesting because the the French court is always thought to have been politically influential. But I think, in my opinion, that has been exaggerated. The really key figures are the ministers who sit alone with the king in his bedroom or, or his council room, a few clerks scribbling away. And, and the courtiers are outside longing to know what's going on. And Constantly they're complaining, the real bosses of the ministers, they have to write begging letters to Louvois or Colbert, the great 
finance minister asking for jobs, asking for privileges, asking if their son can succeed them as governor of Boulogne or, or whatever. And they're from a different background. They're from legal officials or government officials, quite humble, the, the great dukes of of Noailles or the Duc d'Aumont or others, a much grander background. Occasionally they would get key jobs as governor of a province or general of an army, but they're not ministers with one exception, the Duc de Beauvilliers, who who Louis Fourteenth really loved. And the other kind of great tension of the book is, is, is his relationship with Paris, which obviously yes. is, is the capital, it's the centre, but it's a place that ever since the Fronde has been, if you like, marked down as slightly untrustworthy. How how did he negotiate that? Well, it's completely fascinating because he, he does, in fact, do a lot for Paris. The east facade of the Louvre, the great one with columns, that's Louis XIV, personally choosing to have pairs of columns rather than single columns. And there's the Place Vendôme, and there's the Invalide, which is a staggering building, just as important as Versailles. But something changes in the late 1660s. The death of his mother, something we don't really know, maybe maybe a sense of... You see, he had gone on being in Paris after the Fronde in the 1650s, 1660s. He's living some of the year in the Louvre, and he goes to carnival parties, he goes to church services in parish churches, not just in the court chapel. But something changes... Maybe he feels he can get away with what he always really loved, which is country life, gardens, hunting, riding. And from 1671, the ambassador of Savoy actually writes, the, January 1671, the king has now left Paris forever. So he knows something we don't know, that never again... For the rest of his reign, which is over 40 years, does he spend a night in Paris. He occasionally, very grandly, will make a state visit in the day to see a new monument or to be entertained in the Hôtel de Ville. But that's it. And I think that's unique in European history. 40 years never sleeping in your own capital. <laughs> but he knows everything that's going on. He gets these lovely police reports saying who's doing what in the Tuileries Gardens at night or whether the lackey of the Venetian ambassador has quarrelled with a police official or something like that. Tiny details, who's rioting, who's how, the state of provisioning of bread supplies in Paris. But he, he never deigns to sleep there. But he loves Paris because he, he gets all this information and he does these wonderful buildings. Yeah. His relationship with women, you've said, and you say in the book, that you know, Versailles was, at the time, you know, one of the most hospitable places for women in the world. He loved women, he got on with them, he had several mistresses, long-running mistresses, and, you know, as well as his wives. What, what was that relationship? Why, you know, well, was, he, it, was he a feminist avant la lettre? Or was that, I think know, he a was far? a feminist avant la lettre, to a certain extent. If... If the system had let him be, he's part of a system of monarchy, of the Catholic Church, of France. He can't, he's really quite unconventional underneath because he's passionately in love with Marie Mancini, one of Mazarin's beautiful, sexy Italian nieces. This one is, of, his, is his first love, isn't Yes, it? who hit the French court like bombshells. And 
if we had the letters between each other, which have never been found, they probably made fun of Mazarin and probably are planning to elope. But Mazarin stops it. This is 1659 to 1660. Probably he was planning to send his musketeers to get Marie and to marry her. Uh, But it would have been socially totally catastrophic for France. And he's brought up by his mother. His mother is clever, successful, very charming. They actually eat together in the world of the court where there's so many barriers between people and between sexes. That is also unconventional. He tends her when she's dying in 1666, personally, making sure her bedclothes are changed and so on. So he's very, very close to his mother. And he he's shy with women to start with. Marie Mancini is a breakthrough. Then there's her sister Olympe, Comtesse de Soissons. And he really never stops. Then he has Louise de la Vallière, another girlfriend. He's very cruel to her when he dumps her because he insists she stays around to watch him having a passionate affair with Madame de Montespan, a grand noblewoman who's very clever. Again, we don't have her letters, really, so we we only get the other side of the story, which is his last girlfriend and second wife, Madame de Maintenon, who is constantly criticising Madame de Montespan. But he's always with Montespan or Maintenon, often alone in a room, away from the court and the courtiers. Maybe he's using women as a barrier against his male courtiers, who are always asking for something, jobs, favours and so on. And he he likes the company of women. There's this extraordinary book published in his reign called Equality of Two Sexes and the Necessity of Destroying Prejudices, 1673 Paris, with Louis' monogram on the title page. Uh, he didn't, of course, quite live up to that, but he does favour Maintenon's scheme for a ladies' school, one of the best of its time, at Saint-Cyr. He does often use women on diplomatic missions. He corresponds with the Queen of Poland, the Queen of Portugal, and so on, who are French princesses. He uses them diplomatically. It's it's all quite fluid. And they were able to exercise power? Yes. Soft power. M- M- Madame de Maintenon is a spider at the heart of a web of job applications, favour applications, news, information, bread riots in Normandy. Can, can I have a job for my daughter? Can I have a position at the school for my daughter? And so on. Yes, real power. Now, there is a point at which somebody, and I can't remember who it was, writes that the reason that Louis prosecutes a pretty disastrous siege in the southern Netherlands is essentially, you know, to impress the chicks, that... It's yes. it, his his romantic nature is causing his his military obsession. Is that the correct reading, or is it just he loved he loved the fighting? I, I, th- for I think its, own it's, sake? it's part of the truth. I think he he loved grand sieges, which didn't waste military lives, and he could make a state entry into Mons or Lille or whichever city he had taken. But he does do this thing of bringing court ladies with him. To the siege, and he did this extraordinary thing of corresponding with Madame de Montespan about military details. So it is partly to impress the chicks, yes. <laughs> and and no other monarch has a great train of court ladies going with him to to Luxembourg, to Strasbourg, places no Parisian lady would go to now. Though, as you say later on in his his life, towards, you know, he has a, a great run of losing family members. 
and he's absolutely stricken with grief. But you contrast that to the sort of coldness with which he puts aside his mistresses when he's yes. done with them. What did were they a different category for him? Yes, I see. Uh, it's it was said uh, Saint Simon, this very hostile memoir writer, said he he used women like horses. He rode them and then cast them aside when they were exhausted. Yes, he's very cold to fallen mistresses of the, the Duchesse de Fontange, who's a beautiful young woman of twenty, who whose health is wrecked by pregnancies. And very loving to his family, very attentive to his family, m- much more than say the the Hanovers or the Habsburgs or other dynasties. He's just a mixture of contrasts. He could be very warm and friendly. He very good with courtiers when he wanted to be and utterly indifferent when Madame Fouquet, wife of his fallen, disgraced minister, is begging him for mercy that her husband shouldn't be put in solitary confinement for life. But he just sails past her. Now, these wars you talk about, which again goes to Scout, you've said he preferred sieges to pitched battles. And you said sort of practical reason for that, among other things, is that, you know, you lose fewer troops. But he doesn't seem to have been sentimental about troops. I mean, in the sense that the depredations he involved yeah. in his wars in the southern Netherlands and the Rhineland, you know, whole areas of land were absolutely kind of sown with salt yeah. and raised and people put to the sword. I mean, he wasn't wasn't a cutie pie in that respect. <laughs> it's It's... He changes. At the beginning of his life, he is very keen on the discipline of the French army and not looting civilians and villages. That's the 1660s. But in the 1680s, with Louvois as war minister and increasingly powerful, this great military bureaucrat who's in thinking of new weapons and new means of terrifying Europe, and so they are destroying whole cities in the Rhineland, like Mannheim or Heidelberg, which are still practically not got over it. They're still talking about the French behaviour. Heidelberg is an early 18th century city because it stopped existing in the 1690s. And it's it's like what Putin is doing now in Ukraine, devastating, wrecking. I think it's a war machine completely out of control, and it's counterproductive because... As Putin has done, so Louis the Fourteenth in the late 1680s, he unites Europe against him, particularly Protestant Europe and German and English opinion. Everybody knew what was happening. Well, also like Putin, you, know, you make the point that though he loved his army, particularly by the end of his reign, it was a bit crap. He yes. didn't, you know, you have a statistic where he spent 11 million livres on Versailles and only 7 million livres on keeping the navy up to scratch. Yes. And that they were using out-of-date equipment, they were... You know, they weren't quite the Red Army. I think that's all true. It was it was said in the 1660s, and this is a force Europe has never seen. It's such a huge army, 200,000 men, perfectly equipped. But by the end, because of corruption and I think stifling of technology, the cannon didn't fare well compared to British and Dutch cannon, and they often blew up in the face of the troops, and even the soldiers themselves were weak and unhealthy compared to great big Germans, English and Dutch. And that is probably because the French economy is doing badly. And they turned and ran at Blenheim and Louis XIV couldn't, he always thought French troops would beat an equal number of foreign troops, and he was wrong. And he, he knew something had gone 
terribly wrong. But when the when there's a really good general like Vila at the end, they can just about hold their own against Marlborough. It, it wasn't a complete walkover. Yeah. Now, that question of the economy and expenditure, he was sort of extraordinarily terrible with money, wasn't he? Yes, but everything worked well when this great economic genius, Colbert, as chief minister, who, who dies in 1683, partly worn out by working for Louis Fourteenth and be, being criticised for getting, being slow about getting Versailles ready for him. They, they couldn't bear royal disfavour or royal displeasure, which was probably conveyed with an icy look. <laughs> and before then, he has these lovely books, which I've seen, a sort of budget, everything is more or less balanced, and France is booming, the centre of luxury trade, Paris as an economic motor. But then, 1685, the catastrophic decision to make Protestantism illegal, which leads to the flight of 150,000 brilliant, hard-working, technologically advanced Protestants who go to London, Amsterdam and Berlin and help Louis XIV's enemies. And then war taxation and terrible harvests, terrible winters, a little ice age. France is sort of collapsing they're never totally and there's always bits of the economy which are doing quite well and at the end he has one of Colbert's nephews who is controller general of finances who helps things slightly improve but he does more or less wreck France economically and some of French refugees helped found the Bank of England in 1693. Yes so even actually while Colbert's still alive you have this lovely Moments where Colbert's saying, you know, sire, I'm not sure that you should be spending all this money on Versailles. Yes. But they were, I'm rather pro-Versailles. <laughs> I think it was, it was such an extraordinary feat. And it put back into the French economy through displaying French clothes, French furniture, French mirrors, men, French sculpture. It put back a lot into the economy. It was the wonder of Europe. It attracted, it was a magnet for foreign tourists and travellers. They wrote about it on the whole admiringly. And it it wasn't really as much as a new fleet or he built 150 fortresses around France. They also cost a lot of money and some of them went on functioning till the Second World War. Now that sense of Versailles as, you know, a great calling card, it how much was spectacle and you know because he had elaborate ceremonies of the levee and he'd appear in these kind of things festooned with yes. diamonds and jewels was that a kind of means of projecting power or ratifying power or was it was it just pure vanity it's it's power it's vanity it's it's also tourism it's disney building a disneyland that will bring the punters in and even at the last great reception for the Persian ambassador, 1715, he's covered in jewels and he walks close to the audience in the Galerie des Glaces so that the ladies can admire his jewels. And and it's sort of worked. It does bring people to Paris and Versailles. You can read all these foreign travel accounts by Germans and English and Italians and so on. And it's not just spectacle, it's also a job centre. 
you go there to ask the king or his ministers for a job for your nephew or yourself or a new university for Douai or something like that. And that works. It, it, it's a, quite an efficient place because everyone's in the same place to get your, your, your negotiations done. And also it's a new centre. It's, it's the White House, a rather more elegant and public version of the White House. Everybody wants to go there once in their lives. Yeah. Now, there are sort of different calls on his on his loyalty, if you like. There's the you know, there's the Catholic Church, the papacy, there's the idea of this sort of personal Bourbon dynasty, which obviously is hugely important to him as he, you know, gets involved in the war of the Spanish succession. And then there's, you know, La France, the state. Where was his his deepest loyalty in your view? Huh. Well that's a very perceptive question. It was 1700, November, the, the doors of his study open. It's Tuesday, so the foreign ambassadors are there. He tells them, he shows them his younger grandson, Philippe Duc d'Anjou, and he says, Monsieur, here is the King of Spain. And so his deepest loyalty, in a way, is to his family. He doesn't want more territory for France. He wants to put his grandson as King of Spain. And the Bourbons are still kings of Spain today, partly because of Louis XIV. So he also has a very good hereditary claim through Louis XIV's wife. And French troops are fighting to keep a Bourbon as king of Spain. It was probably good for France, but it didn't actually win a new province for France. But he's very conscious of France as a state. And 1709, when things are going badly, he's prepared to dump his grandson to try and save France. So he has a double loyalty and he's also loyal to his own reputation and glory. So he, some battles or sieges were probably undertaken with that in mind more than French national interests. I think his real loyalty is to his dynasty, the Bourbons. Let there be Bourbons or, or Bourbon power all over the world. It's kind of extraordinary that he did seem to, despite being badly on the ropes in the War of the Spanish Succession, he somehow conjures out of the peace yep. something favourable to himself. How does he do that? Well, he has a very good foreign minister, the Marquis de Torsi, who is a nephew of Colbert, this brilliant family of administrators. And he's he's helped by French and Spanish resilience. Actually, the Spanish prefer the Bourbon king to the Allies' Habsburg candidate. He's helped by his own army, which sort of staggers on somehow, and his fortifications. But above all, what 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 always helps you most in the end, it's divisions among your enemies. It's divisions in England. The fact that the new Tory government of Queen Anne in 1710 wants to make peace. They're fed up with war and they're fed up with Marlborough and the Duchess of Marlborough being high and mighty and wanting more wars, more campaigns, more money for themselves. Um, the Duke of Marlborough even dreams of dictating peace in Paris and forcing Louis XIV to summon the States General. I mean, it's crazy. And so there are secret messengers between Windsor Castle and Versailles, the Abbe Gautier, Bolingbroke, the great Tory writer and minister, Henry St. John, Viscount Bolingbroke, who's just as English as the Duke of Marlborough. He's also pro-French. He'd been in Paris and he makes this piece behind the backs of 
England's official allies, Austria and the Dutch. This is when the phrase perfide Albion, perfidious Albion, begins because they actually helped the French to win, to defeat the Dutch and the Austrians while they're allied to them. It's all a deal so that they, they can have peace and then, above all, the secret economic underpinnings of war. It's not just about glory and territory it's also about trade doing down dutch trade and in this case england wanted the monopoly of supplying slaves to spanish america the spanish colonies which was extremely profitable france had got it under philip v england gets it at the treaty of utrecht in 1713 and it's judged solely for its profitability there's no morality mentioned at all no, to, to come back to morality then, I'm interested in how pious he actually was. There's Te Deum's left, right and centre, yeah. but, you know, there's in some ways the greatest mistake he makes is in the 1780s, suddenly turning around, repealing the Edict of Nantes, yep. turning on the Huguenots in a really savage way. Yep. Now, why did he make that colossal blunder? Was that... a sudden burst of Catholic enthusiasm or were there deeper politics at play? Well, we can't see into men's souls. We don't know how pious he really was. I think he believed in everything. He went to church all day, every day. Not all day, but a lot of the time. And he's very Catholic. And I think always the European dimension is the key He's competing with the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I to be top Catholic monarch in Europe. Leopold I is winning glory by defeating the Turks at the Siege of Vienna, 1683. Even French nobles go to volunteer to go into his army and some English nobles too. It's really a grand event because the great Ottoman army is fleeing back to Istanbul. Hungary is being liberated. I mean, Louis is furious because... He can't really compete with that, except by doing something grand to please the Pope and Catholic opinion, and that is to make Protestantism illegal in France. The Huguenots had been exceptionally loyal in the Fronde. They were a great asset to France, the French Protestants, but he destroys their churches, destroys their marriage and birth registers, says it's illegal to go to any services, even practically to read the Bible in the the Protestant version, to sing psalms, anything like that. And so they, at the risk of their lives and against his orders, they get ships, they get uh, they cross the frontier on land, they pay for their passage out. It's slightly like people fleeing. I mean, you can't not think of the comparison of people fleeing Germany in the 1930s and this shows the limits of Louis's power. You could bribe your way out of France on a boat, how, however stringent the, he forbade people to flee, and they did flee, and this begins the economic decline of France. There's a remark, probably false, attributed to General de Gaulle, that if Louis Fourteenth had not revoked the Edict of Nantes, the first man on the moon would have spoken French. Uh, they lose this terrific technological lead in guns and weapons and finance and uh, and links with Protestant Europe. He's probably doing it out of competition with the Holy Roman Emperor 
but but this is the Catholic aspect of incredibly dying Protestant ladies had the host, the Catholic wafer, pushed into their mouths so they would die Catholic. He's trying to save his subjects' souls. He really thought he was doing God's work, direct line to God. And would you characterise it as a genocide? No, because there's one moment when one of his ministers suggests to him, we should les exterminate tous, exterminate them all. And the king says, no. But an awful lot died in horrific circumstances. These dragonards were called, dragoons were quartered on people, people's village in their houses and villages. No, I, I wouldn't. Now, towards the end of his reign, you know, he seems to be, uh, albeit he's sort of fighting practically the whole of Europe and running out of allies left, right and centre, he has this sort of remarkable thing of something like four generations of male heirs, and that yes. all evaporates in a matter of years, doesn't it? Yes, and, and, and again, he may be partly at fault. He chose bad doctors. His courtiers knew his favourite doctor, who I think was a friend of... Madame de Maintenon, Fagon and others, was was not a good doctor. When he's actually dying, they insist on getting doctors from Paris or a second opinion or third opinion. And people at the time said it's the doctors who killed the Dauphin, Louis XIV's son, his granddaughter-in-law, the Duchesse de Bourgogne, whom he adored, who's the centre of court life, his grandson, the Duc de Bourgogne, who... Saint-Simon, the great memoir writer, compares to Jesus Christ. He was the hope of France. He was going to reform everything. He was going to treat the poor much better. And even one of his great-grandsons. And then this key figure, the Duchesse de Ventadour, who's a really powerful woman with the job of gouvernante des enfants de France, governess of the children of France. She insists on taking her baby charge her, the prince she's looking after, and removing him from the doctors and looking after him herself. And he survives and he becomes Louis XV, who is a very healthy person and reigns for the next 50 years. And he tries to specify, doesn't he, what the succession is going to be and indeed to limit the powers of the sort of presumptive regent, the Duc d'Orléans. But he doesn't get his way in the end. Why is that? I mean, is it just your writ ends when your life does? It's it's another interesting example of the, the system being more powerful than the king, the structure more powerful than the agent of power at the heart of it. You, he wanted to insert his illegitimate sons into the order of succession because they, they were running out of hours, and this was revoked immediately after he died. The French society couldn't cope with bastards being powerful, with Mary, Mary, because they were the children of double adultery of Madame de Montespan, who was also married as well as the king. And his nephew, this brilliant Bourbon prince, the Duc d'Orléans, the Regent Orléans, was highly intelligent. The king didn't really like him because he was debauched. He made fun of God. He probably made fun of the king too and he flaunted his girlfriends in public. But he had sewn up the power structure through the Parlement de Paris, through the colonel of the regiment of French guards, and through other people, and he'd prepared the way, 
and he's one of these people you know it all works like clockwork i.e it was extremely well prepared he produces this remark to the council oh the king told me before he died that any extraordinary measures i had to take i should take so he takes these extraordinary measures he in fact revokes the king's will which had made all decisions dependent on a majority in the council of regency and he goes to the Parlement de Paris after the king's death and he imposes a new will and a new power structure. And he rules France for the next eight years relatively successfully. He begins to restore the economy and government finances and he's committed to peace, peace with England. And how do you think history now looks on Louis XIV? How has his reputation kind of wavered up and down since his death, where are his stocks now? Well, it's very, very fascinating. It wavers with French politics and European politics. He was hated under the Third Republic, which was very anti-Catholic. And because of the revolution, the, the poverty of French peasants, which shocked even Peter the Great when he visited France in 1717. But now France has... The Fifth Republic, which is, as is often said, a republican monarchy or a monarchical republic, and a strong, the strongest executive in Western Europe. So a strong monarchy like Louis XIV is looked at with more favour. And Versailles has come back into its own. It's been revived. Before Covid, there was a party every night, a fashion show, a ball, a concert, an opera, as there had been under Louis XIV. Foreign heads of state are entertained there, including President Putin. Business meetings are held there. That's where Macron summons leaders and says, il faut choisir la France. And who knows, perhaps it works. And millions of visitors go there. It's the most visited monument in the world after the Forbidden City in Peking. And, in fact, there are so many tourists that they were damaging the fabric and the curators didn't really know how to limit them and how to control them. It's, it's a huge sort of magnet for the French economy and tourism. And that, I think, and there's a revolution in historiography. Everybody is talking about these aspects which were rather mocked before. It, it was a great creative hub. The king himself loved music, dance, architecture, sculpture, gardening, plays. He would talk to Racine, the playwright, or Le Nôtre, the gardener, or Mansart, the architect, as equals. It's his best side. He, he really made it as important as Athens or Rome had been. And he, he's consciously trying to do this. Poets say, oh, we've got a new Rome. It's at Versailles. And this aspect has been revived. There's a centre for Baroque music. There's all, all sorts of new forms of creativity returning to Versailles now. The King of the World is out now in paperback. Philip Mansell, thank you very much. Thank you. The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, 
please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK and our closing date is the 4th of July.